This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science, but did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org slash join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join. This is the Science Podcast for March 10th, 2023. I'm Sarah Crespi, and we went to the AAAS annual meeting this week. First up, though, we have a special segment on compassion fatigue in those that work with research animals, scientists, and staff. With online news editor David Grimm, we discuss how to recognize the sometimes severe mental toll that can be associated with this work and what some institutions are doing to help. Next up, Overturning assumptions in ocean circulation. Physical oceanographer Susan Lozier gave a plenary talk at the AAAS annual meeting about how new tools have been giving us a more accurate view of how water moves around the world. She sat down with producer Kevin McLean to talk about what we've been learning and why it's time to move on from the classic ocean conveyor belt model. In this first segment this week, we've got something a little bit special. Online news editor David Grimm wrote a feature on compassion fatigue in scientists and staff that work with research animals. So we're going to talk about how this is difficult for people. This is tough work, but we're also going to talk about how important it is to research, and we're going to talk about solutions. I hope you'll stick around to hear from all of these wonderful people that we talked to that are trying to help. I think you wanted to be a vet when you were a kid, right? I did want to be a vet. Yes, I did want to be a vet. I wanted to be a veterinarian, but then I passed out interning as a junior high school student. And I passed out when they were doing something kind of painful to a guinea pig. Yeah, I also started working at a vet when I was in in high school. Yeah, for sure. What made you decide not to be a vet? A lot of it was honestly that, you know, I think we have these romantic conceptions of what these jobs are. I love animals, so I want to be in a field where I'm surrounded by animals all day. But in most professions, that also means, unfortunately, being surrounded by animal death and sometimes suffering. And that was the case at the vet clinic as well. Yeah, I think this is well known among the veterinary community. This is no mystery to anybody who's worked in this field. But we're going to talk today about people who work with research animals. Well, right. And what we're talking about is compassion fatigue. And this is a deep kind of emotional, mental and physical exhaustion that comes when you're surrounded by the suffering and the death of others. And this is something that we've known about for decades, actually, in the human healthcare field, especially those that are around patients that are terminally ill or just patients that are very sick all the time. 
This can really affect the mental health of healthcare practitioners. They can be checked out, they can be anxious, they can be depressed. They can actually have chronic physical ailments and even some people will turn to alcoholism and drugs and in extreme cases, people commit suicide. This is also known in the companion veterinary field. They're around cats and dogs all day, but, you know, they're euthanizing, you know, maybe dozens of animals a week and they are maybe giving medications that are making these animals uncomfortable. And so how come this is something that we are familiar with for people who work in hospitals or people who are veterinarians, but not with people who work with research animals? This is one of the reasons I wanted to write the story, because we're talking about tens of thousands of people who work in lab animal care, who do everything from clean cages to give medications to veterinarians who are heads of entire facilities and then maybe oversee hundreds or thousands of animals that they are caring for, that they are sometimes euthanizing. So this is kind of a wide spectrum of people, but these are also people that are really kind of hidden from public view. A lot of these facilities tend to be in university basements. People literally can't see what these people are doing. But I think also the public doesn't really understand this part of research. They know what a scientist is, what a veterinarian is, but they don't really know what a lab animal tech is or what those people do. And when the public does hear about these people, it's often in a very negative light. And so either these people are kind of invisible or they are vilified when they are visible. And people don't always make the connection that this is a really critical part of scientific research that, you know, sometimes these unpleasant things have to be done to the animals or an animal needs to be euthanized well before the end of its natural life because researchers need to figure out how a drug is working or something else as part of the research. After talking with Dave about his story, what the story was about, the sources that he talked to, I thought it was going to be really important for everyone to hear from these people directly how they feel about the animals, how they feel about their work. And you know, they've had compassion fatigue and now they're trying to do something about it. First, we're gonna hear from Preston Van Hooser. He's at the University of Washington. He worked for years to figure out the mechanism for a type of blindness. And while working on this problem, he used a clinical mouse model and he suffered from compassion fatigue. Even while he was having success in his research, the numbers of animals that he used really started to hit him. Every year when I would sit down to calculate the number of animals that I had used for this project, I, I still get choked up. It was on the order of mm. approximately 13,000 mice a year. So Preston kept working, getting closer to figuring out how this blindness works. He wasn't the only one there. There were others in lab also using mice. They were all trained, they knew what they were doing, and they believed in the science and the results. But mistakes happen, and Preston made one. My technique was was fine. It was The animal was a little bit smaller than the most of the animals. He was probably the runt. And so um, that really was probably the worst moment. Mm-hmm. in my career. Of course, I, I, I did what I needed to do to, you know, yeah. properly euthanize this animal. And of course, I had to just take a step back. And that's when I realized, like, oh, my God, like, what am I doing? The blindness he was working on, they were actually able to restore vision in their model mice. Probably three or four in the morning, I ran an ERG 
on this cohort of experimental mice with the controls and I couldn't believe it. You know, we had, we had a response to light. That is when I realized, um, oh my God. So we just restored it. You know, I called my parents at three or four in the morning. I was so excited. Um, and then it made it worth it, right? It was like, oh my God, this is exactly what I've been working for. We've solved it. I had no clue what these feelings were I was having that were building up, but now I do. It was compassion fatigue because um, I was ignoring my needs. I was ignoring my own need. And then I would get some good data and it's like, oh my God, I got to keep going. Right. So I just kept suppressing yeah. everything. I had an opportunity to change career paths. And I'm kind of I'm somewhat surprised that I did because we were literally on the top. Yeah. Right. But I ended up leaving the bench thinking, honestly, I would be done with feeling this, this, this guilt and this sadness that I had been dealing with for 10 years. So I think there's a lot of sensitivity around this. Nobody who does this kind of work wants to hurt animals. And we really need to emphasize how vital this is to research, even if, even though it's controversial. Well, you know, that's been one of the big challenges of the story, Sarah, is that this is difficult work that these people do. This is painful sometimes, emotionally painful. This is difficult. But at the end of the day, every single person I talk to believes 100% in the science. They believe that what they do is important for human health, for the scientific enterprise, for our knowledge. And so none of these people are anti-animal research. They all think that's important. They just want people to know, the public to know and others to know that this is tough work, that many people are suffering. And it's not because this is these are bad things to do or bad science. It's because as part of the jobs that they do, sometimes they have to do things that are unpleasant and that can be very emotionally taxing for them. Eventually, while Preston was working at the administrative level at the University of Washington, he was still dealing with research animal care, but he wasn't as hands-on anymore. He also wasn't over his compassion fatigue. At some point, a colleague suggested that they had met someone who could help at the university level with compassion fatigue, and Preston stepped up to try to figure out what they could do. That led me to have many discussions with Annika. You know, at the time she was in Switzerland when I got a hold of her and... When I started in 2009, after my retirement, I told my husband, I'm going to dedicate my time to talk to people about this and especially low people are rare. This is Annika Kaiser. She spent well over 10 years trying to help people who work with research animals deal with compassion fatigue. I feel I'm the right person to be in compassion fatigue because I stood on all sides of the fence. Annika spent so much of her career in lab animal science. She worked all the way, you know, cage washing, autoclaving, to being the director of a huge animal facility at Merck. She worked in all kinds of settings, and over the course of her career, she found her own personal way to cope with compassion fatigue. And sometimes for her, coping meant not taking it home with her. There was a cold water tower on Route 287. This is in New Jersey. And I was halfway home, and I would just tell myself, when I passed that water tower, it's time to think about home. What am I going to do for dinner? I'm going to play games with my daughter and make sure, you know, her homework is done and spend time with the family and also spend time with me, myself. I then I often would put on my favorite songs. John Denver, of course, is one of my favorite 
singers because his songs are so great to shout in your car and get rid of all your frustrations. <laughs> I've totally done this. I'm all about getting stress out in the car. But Annika looked further afield for solutions to this problem that she saw for everyone around her who was working in animal care. She started taking courses in compassion fatigue. Now, this wasn't compassion fatigue in the lab animal community because there wasn't anything available at the time. But she was learning about compassion fatigue in the human healthcare field and other fields. Then she started giving talks all at her own sort of expense. You know, she would go to various universities in Europe and U.S. and Canada, talk about compassion fatigue. I asked her if she would be amenable to fly out to Seattle to potentially set up a round of interviews with folks. We would promote this as like, you know, someone that's going to be coming in to the University of Washington to, to talk to folks about what's going on with them. A non-university person, because obviously many people don't want to talk to their bosses and supervisors and managers because of fear of like, you know, oh my gosh, I'm complaining about my job. I developed a needs assessment for a laboratory animal science facilities. And that's my specialty now. Hearing through Annika that when an animal caregiver might go home for the weekend or let's say a week long or two week long vacation, they would come back and their animals would be gone. So these animals oh, they could yeah. be caring for for a week, a month, six years, seven years, depending on the species, was gone. And they had no idea Endpoint was approaching. They couldn't say goodbye. So that surprised me the most and also made me feel just like, oh my gosh, we have got to figure out how to fix this. When people say to me, if they can't handle it, they don't belong in our field, it's the other way around. You have to have a huge heart. I have seen people walk around with the animals in their arms, hushing them and comforting. I know people have been sleeping in the trucks outside the facilities because they could not leave the animals and caring so much and singing to them. In Annika's experience, she's interviewed more than a thousand people. And between 84 and 86 percent were suffering from compassion fatigue. She even had one facility where a hundred percent had compassion fatigue. After working with Annika and finding out what was happening at the University of Washington, Preston formed a committee at the university called Dare to Care. They looked for triggers for staff and what can be done to help. We identified study endpoint notification as something that needed to be taken care of. Support for staff was yeah. another. We also felt, Sarah, it was important to, especially our animal caregiver staff, have an opportunity to understand what is going on, what, what kind of science is going on. So I termed that as what I call reflection. So this is an opportunity for our research faculty, our principal investigators to maybe give a, a presentation, if you will, to targeted audiences of those animal caregivers that are maybe caring for that PI's animals, giving them the acknowledgement that they so deserve for being part of the research team and caring for those animals on a daily basis. So Dave, how do we know which of these things actually works to help people that take care of animals for research, you know, help them with these feelings? Well, that's a great question. And that sort of remains the million dollar question because the first 
thing has been to sort of acknowledge this is a problem. And that's really starting to happen now with, with the University of Washington and a couple of other institutions. The second step is to try to figure out how to solve it, you know, and some of the stuff has been sort of directly ported over from the human healthcare field, things like making people available to talk to, whether that's therapists or other folks, meditation, yoga. And so that's been made available at a few institutions. But other things are really specific to this field, you know, when, well, and so one of the things University of Washington started doing is they'll put like a little sticker, or like a heart sticker or a note on an animal's enclosure saying, this animal is going to be euthanized on such and such date. And so people have a chance to say goodbye. Um, similarly, they've, uh, University of Washington has made, uh, they have something called the box project where they put these little wooden boxes throughout the animal care facilities that people can, they can write notes uh, to their animals. They can draw pictures. They can just write a little poem or remembrance. And again, it's, it's sort of giving people a way to thank the animals, to memorialize them in, in a way to sort of talk about their feelings, even if it is just sort of writing it, writing it down. But we don't know if any of this stuff works. We just know that there's a lot of stuff being tried right now, but it's not clear if the same things that worked for the human field are going to work for the lab animal field. One long-term study does come up in your story. It's being done right now. And the idea is to figure out which interventions might work for people in research animal care specifically. Can you talk a little bit more about that? This is being headed by a group called the North American Three R's Collaborative. The three R's being replaced. So that's, you know, trying to find alternatives to animals, reduce the number of animals and refine, just refine the way these animals, we sort of use these animals in the lab. One of the, the goals of this organization is also to confront compassion fatigue. We need people to actually do refinement, to do replacement, to do reduction. And we find that if people are burnt out, if they're stressed at work, um, if they're just not feeling good personally, then they're probably not going to be able to do as good of a job for the animals. This is Megan LaFollette from the 3Rs Collaborative. She's actually been working on compassion fatigue since graduate school. I conducted the first large-scale cross-sectional study on the topic, and I found out that there was an association that when animals were experiencing more pain and distress, the people were experiencing more compassion fatigue. And when people were actually enriching their animals less, they actually experienced more burnout. But we knew that it really isn't just the responsibility of the individual person. Um, if they're working at an institution that doesn't support their resiliency, it's really just not realistic or fair to expect someone to do all of this work by themselves. So we actually established a formal working group and a formal longitudinal study where we got a group of experts together from like 22 institutions. We all created what we consider to be a starter pack so that institutions could develop their own in-house compassion fatigue resiliency committees, working groups, activities, etc. And then we're running a um, multi-year study to assess how those implementing those programs um, works over time. What goes into a starter pack for a university or institution interested in, in fighting compassion fatigue? You know, what will you be tracking in your research? First of all, we recommend having just basic training on what compassion fatigue is and acknowledging it and allowing it to be talked about. 
Some of our resources include an online virtual training, as well as written packets, as well as even a poster that people um, can post in the animal research laboratories. Again, acknowledging that this can be challenging work. So that's kind mm-hmm. of the first kind of bucket of strategies is just that acknowledgement and speaking the truth to what people are experiencing. Then the second thing is really about having activities that promote well-being. So this might be mindfulness activities. This might be about workplace relationships, um, team building exercises, etc. These kind of core skills that generally help people be more resilient in their everyday lives and that their workplace, again, is supporting this, allowing them to go to these activities, kind of supporting them in these skills. Mm -hmm. What they say during the interviews, all I want is my supervisor just to say, how are you doing? Are you okay today? Can I say, managers, this is especially for you. Walk around. Go and look up stairwells. People who are emotional disturbed will hide in welcome rooms or stairwells. Go and sit next to them. Don't say, sitting on your bottom again, doing nothing. Just sit next to them and say, what can I do for you? What is it that I can do? That's sometimes not talked about. Yes, there's all the things specific to animal research that affect Mm -hmm. people and compassion fatigue, but then there's also the same things that affect everybody Mm -hmm. else. Everybody wants to have work-life balance, good pay to feel respected and valued. Mm -hmm. We can't get away from some of the, the challenges of conducting animal research. There's There's going to be some challenges there, but at least we can create a workplace that hopefully has everything else in place to help support that. Having a compassion fatigue support program in place, the animals will be better off because people feel happier in their job. The people will be happier. The studies will be better conducted because they are much more aware of a lot of things, emotionally aware. It all around. It is only good. You're writing this story, and it kind of seems like the beginning. This is a problem. People recognize it, but there hasn't been a ton of study. There's nothing solidified around what the solutions might be. Is that how you see the state of the compassion fatigue field for animal researchers? Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm so glad you asked that, Sarah, because I feel like a lot of the stuff I write, especially the feature stuff I write, has sort of a beginning, a middle, and an end. There was a problem, and people tried to come up with a solution, and now they've got the solution, you know, or now they're getting close to the solution. And this story is very different because we've sort of got the A and the B, but we don't have the C. You know, the, what makes this story, I think, a story is that this is a big problem that's finally coming to light. People are finally starting to talk about it, to recognize it, to try to address it. And yet we still don't know, A, if a lot of other institutions are going to get on board. This is still something that's pretty rare, very rare, actually, to have a compassion fatigue program at an institution. My three plus years of reporting on this, I think I've only come across a very small handful of programs that are actually out there. So will other institutions get on board? Will the government, you know, sort of step in or various governments step in? Will the community as a whole really rally around this? But also, finally, you know, what, if anything, is going to work? What solutions are going to be the effective ones going forward? And there are, there is a study going on right now, and I assume that will give folks a path forward. But I think we're still very much in early days of this. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Sarah. 
David Grimm is the online news editor for Science. You can find a link to the feature story we discussed at science.org slash podcast. Up next, we've got a story from the AAAS annual meeting. Producer Kevin McLean talks with researcher Susan Lozier about moving on from the ocean conveyor belt to a new, more nuanced understanding of our oceans. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology. Are you or one of your colleagues doing great neuroscience? If so, then we encourage you to apply for the prestigious Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology, an international prize which honors young scientists for outstanding neurobiological research based on methods of molecular, cellular, systems, or organismic biology. Submissions are due June 15th. Visit science.org slash Eppendorf to apply today. If you've ever studied oceanography or earth science, you've probably come across a very satisfying diagram that shows how water masses travel on this smooth and predictable path. Cold, salty water sinks down in northern latitudes and snakes through deep ocean basins. And when it gets pushed up to the surface, the water warms and travels in this equally knowable surface current. This ocean conveyor belt, as it's often called, has been a foundational model of how we think about ocean circulation. Susan Lozier is a physical oceanographer who has been studying this overturning process in ocean waters. And for much of her career, she thought about ocean circulation with this conveyor belt model in mind. But over the past 20 years, researchers have been deploying networks of sensors and floats that offer a more accurate understanding of how these water masses turn over. At the AAAS annual meeting, Susan gave a talk about what these new initiatives have revealed and how moving away from this conveyor belt idea will help advance our understanding of the world's oceans. Susan, welcome to the Science Podcast. Thank you. Happy to be here. Now, first, I know we're, we're moving on from this a little bit, but can we talk about the history involved here? You mentioned in your talk that the ocean conveyor belt was named in the late 20th century, but the idea goes a lot further back, doesn't it? It does. And this is just a story that I, that I love to tell. It actually goes all the way back to 1751. There was one gentleman scholar uh, in England who was particularly intrigued about the deep ocean. Now, at that time, you know, for centuries, people thought of the deep ocean as dark, devoid of life and devoid of any motion. And so this gentleman scholar asked Henry Ellis, who was a sea captain of um, these slave traders that were transiting from Africa to the colonies. And he asked him to stop in his transit in what was called the torrid zone then, meaning the equatorial region, and to take some measurements of temperatures at depth. He and his crew had a wooden bucket. Um, They cut out the bottom of it, and then they outfitted the top and bottom of that uh, wooden bucket with valves that would be open when the bucket was lowered into the water, but then when the bucket came up, the valves would shut. And so when they went as far as they could go with the rope, they discovered very cold water at depth. And that was a mystery about why that water was so cold. And they were very pleased with it because they could cool their wines and cool their baths in that very disagreeable climate. 
But it wasn't until 1800 when that letter found its way to the Royal Society of London that Count Rumford first described the conveyor belt because he figured out that there was no way that those waters locally could have become that cold, that they had to have been sourced from the very high latitudes. And so it has always fascinated me that a single measurement, in this case, temperature with depth, that that single measurement led someone to imagine this entire overturning circulation. This is something that has been, you know, so foundational. Why was it so important to actually test it out? And was it, was it hard to like get people on board to, to think about? Not really. So in the late 1990s, oh, so I'll, I'll mention beforehand, though, that until the late 1990s, most people who studied what called the conveyor belt, were really paleoceanographers, not physical oceanographers like me. So a physical oceanographer, physical oceanographers are primarily interested in what we call the modern ocean. So this is the ocean since we've really, let's say since the 18th, 19th century, when we started really measuring it. So we're interested in how the ocean is changing on timescales of years, you know, uh, to decades. But paleoceanographers are interested in how the ocean is changing on thousands, tens of thousands, hundred thousands of years. And so the conveyor belt model was built by paleoceanographers. And the expectation was that it changed on those timescales only. But in the late 1990s, through a paleoceanographic study, the oceanographers found that the there were synchronous changes Changes that were happening at the same time at the high latitudes up in the Arctic were happening down um, at the Southern Ocean in terms of the of the atmospheric temperatures, and these changes were happening on timescales of decades or even years. And the cause of the changes uh, that was attributed to the conveyor belt changes in this overturning circulation, and so people started talking about how the conveyor belt could change rapidly. And the idea then was that that could cause rapid changes in climate. So in the paleo-oceanographic model on those timescales, we know there have been large-scale changes in the climate, but those took, you know, tens of thousands of years. So in the late 1990s, when the study came out, there was just a lot of, I'm going to say, excitement and also worry. Yeah. And so all of a sudden, the the overturning circulation, the conveyor belt, was suddenly in the purview of physical oceanographers. But there were no measurements to date of this overturning circulation. Everything was inferred. And so really there was no hesitation. It was more how do we garner the, the resources and the funding to measure it? Yeah. Well, that that's a good transition because I think, you know, I assume we've moved beyond the the single bucket that's getting dropped down and everything. But Thankfully, what, yeah, yes, what, yeah. Are, what are some of um, the ways that, that things were being measured now and what kind of information do we have that we just didn't have before? Well, we have had, let's say, for 50 years, more instruments in the ocean. So ships go out and they have were able to put in what we call them a mooring. And a mooring has an anchor on the bottom. There's a line that extends to the sea surface. And all along, there are current meters. There are instruments that measure temperatures, sun, and everything. It's very reliable. But that also requires the ships to go out with people, takes a lot of, of time, you know, and resources. But over the past 20, 30 years, we have been developing what are called Lagrangian 
instruments. And Lagrangian basically means these are instruments that are freely floating. Mm -hmm. So instead of being anchored to one place in the ocean, which gives you a certain kind of information, we also um, have been relying increasingly on floats. These floats also can be deployed, you know, from ships. One of the really interesting things is that once they are deployed, they go down to whatever depth or density you want. They go their merry way. They are receiving um, signals from pressure transducers that are, are in the ocean. And then at the end of their mission, they pop up and relay their information to a satellite. But even more so now, we're using what are called gliders, and they can be set off from a dock. And they're pre-programmed, and they go out, and they, they dive down, take measurements, they come up. Uh, relay their information to a satellite, and get instructions, again, about how they might change their track. So these are all autonomous, and it's really revolutionized how we conduct those measurements and is revolutionizing our view of the ocean. So what kinds of things have you been finding that have allowed you to kind of overturn some of these assumptions <laughs> about circulation models? I'm going to ask you now how much time we have, say, Kevin. <laughs> 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 um, I wrote an article several years ago called Deconstructing the Conveyor Belt because on the timescales of years to decades, this overturning circulation doesn't really look anything like, you know, a conveyor belt. And if we really had a conveyor belt, we probably would have understood a long time ago about how the overturning circulation is changing because we would just have to measure it one place and we would we would understand that. But the waters that are carried in this large-scale overturning circulation are not confined to a single current. They're really very spread across the ocean floor as they wind their way to the equator. And it's very noisy, even at, at deep depths. So if we want to get an idea of the ocean temperature, ocean salinity, these properties are much more stable than our measure of something that's very dynamic like the ocean currents. So even somebody that's standing on the beach and they look out and they see all that wave activity, we don't have those surface waves at depth, but there are waves at depth that create, I'm going to say, noise that obscures the signal of these large-scale currents that we're looking at. So I would say it's the noisiness of the ocean and also just the fact that we can't measure in one place that has made this more difficult. Could you maybe talk a little bit about why it's important to understand this sort of this turnover process? Yeah, happy to do that. So in the latest IPCC report, and actually all the IPCC reports have pointed this out, there is a projected decrease in the overturning circulation. And even from first principles, we can understand this because as the waters warm, which they are already warming. And then we expect as the waters warm, they get less dense. But also as the waters freshen because of ice melt, they're also going to get less dense. And so what that means is that every winter, we are going to have less of this deep water formed, right? Because it's going to take a lot more to cool those waters. So I'm going to say from first principles, we all understand that if this climate continues on its warming path, we're going to have a slowing. But right now, if you look at the spread of what the climate models say about when we will have that slowing and uh, by how much, there's a really large spread. 
And in the IPCC report, they say that the big uncertainty about our climate pathways, or should say one of the largest sources of uncertainty about our climate pathway, has to do with the overturning circulation. Also, the overturning circulation, it's not just pulling down the, you know, the temperature and salinity, the properties at the surface, it's pulling down anthropogenic carbon. So the estimate is somewhere between 28 and 35% of the anthropogenic carbon that's been put into the atmosphere since the Industrial Revolution is now in the ocean. So if the overturning circulation slows, it means that the ocean will no longer be a carbon reservoir right? And that means more carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. So it's actually really important for us in terms of being trying to understand the path forward or climate path forward. More accurate can be with those predictions. It helps us figure out how we can mitigate. That's the motivation. If this conveyor belt model isn't quite capturing what's going on with ocean currents, is there is there a new I a know new what you're going to, I know. <laughs> What can I, know, I call it? I know. <laughs> the conveyor belt, it's such a lovely model because it's so simple, right? And I would say that I tell people on really long timescales, we have a conveyor belt, right? But those timescales are 1,000, 10,000, 100,000 years because those properties from in the Labrador Sea, the Erminger Sea, the Iceland Basin, the Nordic Seas, they are finding their way into the global ocean and mixing brings those waters back to the surface and they wind their way back to the North Atlantic. But we don't, we don't have a conveyor belt on the timescales that, that we have. It's very noisy. The waters are moving in all different directions, which is people have a hard time imagining this. The deep ocean, you know, could, could have that much, um, I'm going to say, noise. So I would say it's I don't have an analogy yet, Kevin, but I feel pretty challenged, you know, to come up with one. But it's sort of like if you took the conveyor belt and sort of shredded it, <laughs> shredded it, you know, yeah. and then tried to paste it back together, maybe. Yeah. I don't know. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to work on that. But sometimes something really complex, when you do reduce it to such simplicity, I mean, to be honest, it has put us behind in some ways because we had the expectation. We just had to measure in one place, right? And that wasn't at all at all true. And we also didn't understand how rapidly it changed. And so we didn't go to the right place to measure it because of this conceptual model. So it isn't just that it just can, it can be misleading by having the wrong model, conceptual yeah. model. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and what a fortunate place to be in where we can actually measure things to the, the detail that, that we want to. Yeah, agreed. And, you know, for the, I always tell everybody that the, uh, in oceanography, we're about 50 years behind our atmospheric scientists just because the ocean is, is so inaccessible, you know, compared to the, to the atmosphere. So the deep ocean is corrosive, you know, because it's so salty, it's had those high pressure. And so the technology that we have now and the instruments really are allowing us to see the amazing image of the deep ocean that we never really understood. And so in the absence of that, our narrative was pretty boring that it was still dark, devoid of life, you know, et cetera. So it's a pretty amazing place that the deep ocean and also it's amazing and it satisfies, you know, curiosity to learn more, but just the fact that the ocean, that deep ocean is playing such a role as a carbon reservoir is really what motivates my 
yeah, what motivates my my interest in this work as well. Well, thank you so much, Susan. It's been really great to talk with you. Yeah, thank you. I've enjoyed it. Susan Lozier is the Dean of the College of Sciences at the Georgia Institute of Technology. You can learn more about her work and the talk she gave at science.org slash podcasts. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions, write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. You can listen to the show on the Science website, science.org slash podcast, or search for Science Magazine on any podcasting app. This show was edited by me, Sarah Crespi, and Kevin McLean, with production help from Podigy. Special thanks to David Grimm for his work on the compassion fatigue piece. The music in that story was from Epidemic on Getty. Jeffrey Cook composed the show music on behalf of Science and its publisher, AAAS. Thanks for joining us.